Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me for this edition of Investigation Bible. I'm your biblical investigator, Bill Kaufman, and I'm now 10-8 for this episode. And this episode is about people. People, intelligent people who are believers. Um, people who are educated and people who are considered brilliant by pretty much everybody, who also are believers. Now, many of them came to faith that I'll be speaking about today after not being believers. That's kind of the common theme here. People, most of the people I'm going to be talking about were not believers and they be, they, they came to faith through study. Now, um, that's kind of my story. That's, 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 that's what I did. Um, but I'm nowhere near these, the people I'm going to speak on today. I'm not in their league when it comes to intelligent people. <laughs> I'm not anywhere near educated like them. I'm nowhere near as high an IQ as them or anything like that. So these people are next level jump. I was a good athlete. I, I was, but I want to, I'm not a professional athlete. You know, I can't do that. Couldn't be in the NFL or the NBA or the major leagues. Um, not good enough. That's all there is to it. Just wasn't, didn't have quite that much ability. Well, that's the same thing here. I, I, I'm a normal person. I've got an intelligent brain like, like you do, but these people are that next level. These are the, the professional athletes. These are the professional smart folks. <laughs> so anyway, I'm going to start with Werner Heisenberg. Now Heisenberg, the Heisenberg principle, uh, we've spoke on that a few weeks ago, actually. I'm not going to get into all that, but he's kind of one of the fathers of quantum mechanics. Okay. And Heisenberg has a lot of really cool little statements that he makes and everything, but I'm going to start this one with this. Now, I don't think, uh, um, well, you'll understand. This is a quote from Heisenberg. The first gulp from the glass of natural sciences will turn you into an atheist. But at the bottom of that glass, God is waiting for you. See, at one point in his life, he was an atheist. But he didn't die an atheist. No, his studies actually brought him all the way around. And his studies in... Um, quantum mechanics brought him all the way around to where he had belief in God again. But I'm going to be speaking about people, at least a few of them, who were ardent disbelievers, uh, unbelievers, in fact, to the point to where they actually were militant about it. Uh, the first being, the very first early guy was the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul was a smart guy, okay? Um, he says that he was schooled at a school of Gamaliel that was very famous in the first century. You had to be from a fairly well-off family, probably to even get to go to a school by Gamaliel. Gamaliel's grandfather was the very famous Jewish theologian, Hillel. And, um, I mean, this is a, this, he's the big shot. Like going to Harvard right now, okay? It's a big deal. And that's where he was educated. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Um, he, he just... He he had it all going for himself, and he was a young man at this point, and he was ardent against this new thing called Christians, just flat out against it. He was so much against it that he says in the in the book of Acts, he actually says that he voted to you know put people out of their misery who believed in Jesus. Okay, and what was he doing the day he came to Christ? Well, he was heading off to a place called Damascus. And from Jerusalem, with an army, pretty much of people to arrest these new believers in this Christ guy. That's what that's what was going on. 
And God knocks him off his horse, blinds him, tells him to go speak to a guy who's going to baptize him, and he'll be able to see again. And he goes off in the wilderness after this, and he, he has faith in God, and somehow, and I don't understand it completely, Jesus taught him directly. He didn't know Jesus on this earth. Lived at the same time, but he was off in Damascus or Antioch or Greece when Jesus was walking around. Now he's come back to Jerusalem and there's this new Christian thing going on and he tries to destroy it. But in the process, God reaches out to him, saves him, he comes to Christ, and wow, what a difference. I mean, okay, there's 27 books in the New Testament. Very first episode, you want to go over that? Go to our first episode and Investigation Bible and you'll see. But the out of those 27 books, he wrote 13 or 14 of them. I don't know if he wrote Hebrews, but he wrote Romans and First and Second Corinthians and First and Second Thessalonians and First and Second Timothy. He wrote Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. He wrote Titus and Philemon. Um, I don't know if I got them all there, but regardless, he wrote thirteen for sure. He might have written Hebrews, and if he did, then fourteen. So he wrote basically half of the entire New Testament. God used this guy to write that. He was very brilliant. He was a very intelligent man. And I think God chose him for that purpose. But now let's let's move to the end of what he did with his life. He built churches. He established them. He wrote half the New Testament. He encouraged people. He was a missionary with three missionary journeys where he ran and he started a lot of these churches that are in the New Testament. He and Silas, he and um, different people, Timothy, um, Luke, different people. He, he went out and did this stuff. But Paul was the, the catalyst. He was the push. He was the guy doing the, you know, the, the work there. So anyway, um, <clears throat> and, by, and he gave it all. He, he gave up everything he had for this Christ guy, all right? And he said, I count it absolutely worth nothing to be famous or to be rich or to be have all your friends think the world of you. I count it all worthless compared to achieving Christ. Okay, so he, he, that's what he did. And in, by the way, he did. Um, the, they believe it's in 64 AD. That's when Rome burned. And Nero blamed the Christians. And when he did, he executed a bunch of them. And it is believed that's the year that Paul was killed because he was in prison for sharing his faith. He was in prison in Rome, and he was going to go before Nero and have his say. And he wanted to do that. And um, it, it turned out, though, that Nero, I don't think, listened to him, and he had his head chopped off. All right, that was 64 AD. So the Apostle Paul would be the first person that, he came to Christ, but he was an ardent not believer at first, to the point to where he actually voted to execute people, okay? And he held the jackets when the very first martyr was killed, Stephen, and the, the people stoned him and killed him because he was a, this new believer. When the Jewish people did that, Paul held their coats. He, he didn't say that he threw any of the rocks, but he said, oh, give me your coat. You're gonna throw, I'll hold your coat for you while you throw the rocks at that guy. That's how much of an ardent unbeliever he was, and yet he spent the last few decades of his life <laughs> preaching Jesus. All right. Now, next one. C.S. Lewis, very famous man. Um, Chronicles of Narnia, so on and so forth. He probably the one of, 
he might be the most influential person to me of the 20th century to me to 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 my reading um when i read him i really felt like i was reading somebody that was so much smarter than me that i just had to really learn from this guy okay well when he was young he um he had a pretty rough life okay c.s lewis was born not at first because he was born to upper middle class family um mom and dad were doing great they loved each other he had an older brother um i think his name was warren um but they 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 had a good family nice nice family but then when he was about 10 years old he might have been nine or ten i don't remember the exact year but when he was nine or ten years old his mother died and and back then you got pneumonia you died i mean without penicillin you all kinds of things could just kill you okay and so his mother died when he was about 10 years old. And he was born in the 1800s, 1890s, I think 98, 1898, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, but his name was Clive Staple and he hated that name, Clyde Staple and, uh, Clive, C-L-I-V-E. And, um, when he was about four years old, his dog was killed. His dog was named Jax, I think, Jax. And so he told everybody he wanted to be called Jacks. Well, they wouldn't call him Jacks, but they would call him Jack. He went by Jack for the rest of his life. So from about four years on, he actually, if you were his friend, you didn't call him CS, you called him Jack. But I wasn't his friend, doesn't matter. All right, anyway, um, didn't know him. But I've read, he died actually right after I was born. And shortly after I was born, he died. But anyway, rough childhood, mom dying young, that can really affect people. That can. And that's rough. Um. He did go to church as a child, but not much. And after his mother died, pretty much had nothing to do. His father had nothing to do with him. And that before that, his father did. So something happened there with his dad because he lost his wife, and it, it hurt him somehow. And he wasn't all that attentive to his sons. And maybe he didn't know how to be. Maybe his father wasn't. I don't know, you know. But you know, it, it's life's very complicated and very tough. Problem is, when you're a kid, you don't understand that adults are going through things too, and that's what happened. So in World War, well, now he grows up, and he goes to private schools and everything, but in World War One, he goes and enlists. Well, actually, we've got to go back one step before that for his atheism. Remember, his mother died, and he prayed that God would save her, and he did not. And then he had a teacher, uh, William Kirkpatrick, William Kirkpatrick was his private tutor, okay, that his father, upper middle class, hired to teach both him and his older brother, all right? And this William Kirkpatrick guy was an atheist, and he taught from that viewpoint. So I don't think um, C.S. Lewis's dad cared about that one way or another. It doesn't seem to have. and um, But it did influence C.S. Lewis tremendously. So he's already mad at God for not saving his mom. He has this teacher who he looks up to and respects and and a respectable man, very intelligent. Um, C.S. Lewis never had anything bad to say about that guy other than he was absolutely an ardent atheist. And so he influenced him. And so he's now, oh, and then, so he's going off to college. He gets accepted into Oxford. And when he's going there, the war's broken out. And so he goes in actually as a Lieutenant. He goes into the army um, but he is experiencing trench warfare, and he has a really good friend. 
both in school. They joined together. And um, that guy was named Moore, Patty Moore. And um, his good friend, Patty, there's pictures of them together when they were going to Oxford and stuff before the war. And they were just good friends. And you know what? I joined the Army with my good friend, Doug. And that, oh, by the way, that's the reason for the hat and the shirt. Seventy. Uh, I, I wore it for the fact that when I was studying about C.S. Lewis, I was like, yeah, he was a soldier just like me. And um, but so I wore some military stuff because in, on the 75th anniversary of D-Day, I got to participate and do a airborne jump into Normandy out of a World War II aircraft. That was kind of fun. That was in 2019. And one of the more exciting things I've ever got to do in my whole life because I jumped in the same place that the paratroopers jumped out in World War Two, okay, and I and that's I got this shirt over there at that time, which has the 82nd and the 101, and says D Day across it and stuff. You know, I've got that shirt on today, and I've got a hat on that commemorates D Day also, and I did that in honor of those people. But I was thinking even before them, C.S. Lewis was actually in World War One. So was um, Winston Churchill, by the way. He was in World War One as an officer. And But anyway, nonetheless, he was there. He went in with his friend, just like I went in with my friend. And we actually went into something called Special Forces, and we graduated, my friend Doug and I. We got through. Most people did not graduate that course. I don't know how I did. And I've, I struggled the whole way through. But I got through, and I got on the other side, and I didn't struggle with anything until the, what's called the Q course. And then I did. It was tough, man. They almost killed me, I thought. But I got through it. And um, I got sent to an A-team on the 5th Special Forces Group. And it was at that time that I became a believer. Now, here's the opposite. I became a believer due, during this time in the military, where C.S. Lewis became an absolute anti-believer during his time in the military. Part of that was because his buddy Patty died in the war. That's part of the reason. So he's lost his mother when he was 10. He's got a teacher he respects greatly who's telling him there's no such thing as God. And then he is in the army trying to do his very best and his best friend is killed. Okay. And he saw the horrors of trench warfare, which might be the worst warfare the world's ever known. Oh my gosh, that was terrible, but it was new and it's what they did. And so, but anyway, he was an atheist, flat out atheist. But he had some friends, and one of them, well, actually, he had some influences, I should say. He did have a really good friend, and, and it's uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. You know Tolkien, um, Lord of the Rings guy, you know, all that. Um, those guys were best friends. They actually hung out all the time. They were both college professors at Oxford. They, they were in a group called the Inklings. That was a... Uh, discussion group, a book discussion group. That's all it was. And but some some of the smartest people the world's ever known all there at Oxford at this time. And they a lot of people got involved with this. It's not a book club, but just kind of a uh, literary discussion group. Probably is probably the best way to talk about it. They didn't have a president. They didn't have minutes. They didn't keep any of that stuff. But they got together on Thursday nights, and they did this. Well, Tolkien and and Lewis. They were good friends. Well, Lewis is an atheist at this time, but Tolkien is not. Tolkien is actually a believer. And one time when they were walking together there on the, you know, in Oxford, he asks C.S. Lewis why he's an atheist. 
And he tells him, the reason I'm an atheist is because of all the bad, all the horrors, all the terrible things that happen, the things that break your heart, you know, and that's, you know, I'm way oversimplifying it, but he does. And he says, well, that's the reason that I'm a believer. And he's like, that doesn't make any sense. And he goes, yes, it does. Tolkien tells Lewis, you think something's wrong. Yeah, I think some things are wrong. I mean, they're more wrong morally, right? You actually believe there's things that are morally wrong. Yes. Well, why do you believe that? And Lewis couldn't answer it because Lewis was a naturalist at that time. And he's, and he's like, everything's by nature. There is no design. There's no big plan. There's none of that stuff. We're just here by accident. He goes, if that's true, then why do you care? If it doesn't affect you, why do you care? But yet you do care. You care that somebody in another country has been abused. You care. Why do you care? Why do you choose that one group of people is right over another group of people? Why do you care? Well, you care because it's innate in you. There is something bigger than you, and it is called the moral law. Well, the moral law cannot arise from random. This is C.S. Lewis eventually. Nothing, we, we, this is actually similar to what we were talking about the last two weeks, but, but more in a, a moral and ethical stand than a science stand. But he said, if we're a product of random chance, just random chance, then that cannot produce what we see, which is a moral law that goes throughout. Yes, he even says a lot of people are not moral. A lot of people uh, have different morality bases. He goes, but really we don't. And, and by the way, I agree with this completely. Some people groups say, well, to them, it's okay to, you know, do something wrong, to steal. I, I can't even think of a group that says, okay, steal, but I'm going to use that as an example. This group over here, group A says, it's okay to steal. Okay, so they go out and steal because it's okay. It's not immoral and they don't feel bad about it. They've convinced themselves it's okay. But then you go steal from them and I guarantee you they got a problem with it. And I can tell you that from being a cop because I uh, did that for a lot of years too. And what you might do to somebody else, you get, you, you can't understand why they're mad at you. But if they did that to you, you're calling the cops on them. I mean, that happens all the time. People call the cops on their neighbors all the time for doing stuff that they do all the time themselves. But it's different when somebody else does it. No, it's not. You're just, your morality is real and it's in you. And that's one of the things he asked him. He goes, how did that arise from random chances? And by the way, he had other influences. There was a guy um, named George McDonald, lived a little before them. I think he was still alive when Lewis was, I don't think they were friends or anything, but he was still alive, I think, when Lewis was still alive. I could be wrong on that. But when Lewis was young and he was old. But he wrote these books, um, Fantasias, not Fantasia, but Fantasies. Anyway, I can't. I can't remember, but it's spelled weird. And then the princess and uh, Curdy, I think it was called. And in these books, he talks about similar things like moral law. He doesn't use the terms, but talk about those things. And this really started C.S. Lewis thinking, and he couldn't explain a lot of what he felt and a lot of what he had a strong passion for. And other people did also through natural processes especially if it went against the betterment of that person because there's people that think it's just morally imperative that i tell the truth 
Even if I'm going to prison over my truth, I'm going to still tell the truth. Well, that hurts them. Well, under naturalistic ideas, that should never happen. Okay? You should only be concerned for yourself. But people aren't concerned just for themselves. They're not. So that doesn't explain that. And he talked about the moral law being the notes on a piano. He wrote many books. I don't even know how many books C.S. Lewis wrote. First one I got my hands on was a bunch of series of ex, uh, letters and essays, and it was called God in the Dock. And the dock means uh, the jury. Uh, like when you go up there and, and you uh, they call you to testify, and the jury's sitting there listening to the judge and the defense attorney and the prosecutor, and you go sit at the stand. Well, we sit down at the stand. But in England, they're called, that's at the dock. Come up to the dock. Okay? That's what it's called. Just And so... C.S. Lewis being English, well, actually, he was Irish, to be honest with you. He was born in Ireland, but he lived most of his life in England. Um, but anyway, he, he, he's, this series of lectures and stuff is called God in the Dock, and it's just the most brilliant stuff, essays and speeches and different things. But anyway, nonetheless, he wrote uh, more, many, many books. Um, Great Divorce was probably my favorite. Um, screw tape letters, another one of my favorites. Mere Christianity, another one of my favorites. It's in Mere Christianity. He talks about the piano, and that morality is like music. One note is not more important than another. It's not better. It's not like that note in that octave is more important than this other note in another octave. That's not true. They're the same, except for when you're trying to play a song then they're not the same. There are correct notes and there are incorrect notes. You can have, you can play a song that has the right progression. It sounds great. I do play music myself. I play guitar. And if I do uh, the correct chord progression on that guitar, I can play a Beatles song quite easily. But if I mess that chord progression up, it doesn't sound anything like the Beatles song. I could try and make it sound like it, but it's not going to. I've got the wrong progression. And it's not, none of the, the chords are wrong in and of themselves. They're just wrong to play that song. And that's what morality is. It may be right to um, tell a lie. It's not usually right to tell a lie. I think that usually if you tell a lie, you're off on the piano, you're not playing the right note. But if I lived in Poland in 1939 or 40, and the Nazis were coming to my door, and I had a bunch of Jews in the attic, I'd lie to them. I'd say Heil Hitler and Zikail, and no, go get those Jews. I don't know. I haven't seen any, but hope you get them all. That's what I tell them. While I'm hiding them upstairs, I'd lie to them. Now, some people would disagree with that, and that's fine. But that's, I, I think that's the right note on the piano that time. I don't think it's right to lie usually. But I think that event, you play that note, not this one, okay, on the piano. That's all morality is, um, but, well, no, it's not the right way of saying it. That's what morality is, but that only can be explained by something greater than morality introducing it to us, and that would be the creator. Now, that's how he started his journey, and he wrote a book called Surprised by Joy, where he says by the time he found Christ, or Christ found him, however you want to say it, by the time he was a believer, he could not believe how happy it made him because he hadn't been happy since his mother died. So anyway, 
A Surprise by Joy. Book to read. All right. I'm going to move forward. I'm going to get to Simon Greenleaf. Simon Greenleaf lived from 1783 to 1853. So he had a pretty, you know, at, at that time, that's a pretty long life. I mean, that, that just is. And so that's a 73-year-old man back when our founding fathers were alive. So that's pretty good. Most people didn't live so long back then. But he did. And he was the founder of Harvard um, Law School. He's the founder of it. And he was not a believer. Simon Greenleaf was not a believer in Christ at all. And he actually was challenged because he made some statements about this and he he um to his class and he was challenged by some of the students to prove it because he say the gospels aren't true jesus isn't the christ he didn't raise from the dead this isn't real history all that kind of stuff he would say that in class well in, what they did his students did they challenged him to um prove it like Let's let's put it in a court. So he did. Now remember, he's the professor of law at Harvard University. He's the founder of Harvard Law. Okay, so they set up a trial basically, and he and he sets this up. Long story short, he becomes a believer because he studies it in depth and makes all the conclusions through um, a trial, and he takes all the rules of evidence that he knew about. All, and he wrote the book on rules of evidence, so he did know about it. And he took all this um, uh, common law. He took all the stuff that he had, how law worked and how evidence worked, and he ran the apostles through it, the Gospels. He came to the conclusion that they were eyewitness accounts. He came to Christ. He became a believer. His name is Simon Greenleaf. And he wrote a book called The Testimony of the Evangelists. And... I never read it myself. I don't know where to get it. I would like to read it someday. But C.S. or I'm sorry, Josh McDowell, who's another person on this list, a believer that came to faith, he read this book, and I was quite influential on him. All right, we've got quite a few more to go through, quite a few. And I am, I want to give each one of these people enough time to tell their story a little bit and of how they came to faith, but but who they were as people, because that's important too. And so I'm going to go ahead and stop here, and just, we went over the Apostle Paul, C.S. Lewis, and Simon Greenleaf. Look them all up. Go look. See what they're like. Um, they're all smart, I'm going to tell you. You read C.S. Lewis, you will feel like you're not smart real quick. <laughs> He's just smart, man. And I guess that was kind of what most people who knew him felt about him also. He was just, he also had a sense of humor where Tolkien didn't. Him and Tolkien were best friends. Oh, and by the way, that's where we get Lord of the Rings series, all those. And that's where we get um, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series and all that. That's where they came from, was that literary group that they were both a member of. That's where that comes from. Because they challenged each other. Now they're both believers now, and he's and Tolkien always was, but Lewis is now a believer, and he, and they challenged each other who could write a better allegory, and they both wrote brilliant allegories to Christ because that's what those are. 
That's what Tolkien's work is, and that's what Lewis's work is, at least in Narnia. All right. Well, thank you for joining me for this episode of Investigation Bible. I'm now 1010, and I hope you join me next week again.